Hi, and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church Podcast. We want to thank you for joining us online and remind you to feel free to visit our website at seacoastvineyard.com anytime for up-to-date information on our local church here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. If you would like to give financially to this ministry, whether that's a one-time gift or a recurring monthly gift, simply click on the Give tab at our website and give however God leads you. Now, we want you to enjoy this message from God's Word. guys look great. My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. And, uh, you know, three years ago today, we moved into this building. I had forgotten that until uh, after the first service this morning. I was standing out talking to someone, and they asked how long we'd been here. And I'm like, well, we've been around for 15 years, our church has. And, and uh, we've been in this location for three years. So three years ago, we were having our first service in here this time. And so uh, a lot to celebrate today. And good to see all of our first-time guests with us. Indeed, like Bruce and Brian said, it's so good to see you. Please pick up your gift, and those Connect cards are important to us. We have been in a series that I called uh, 24, and that is we've been, looking at, we've been looking at the last 24 hours of Jesus' life before he died on the cross. Next week, I'm going to start a new series, and uh, maybe you've had questions about the reality of God uh, some of us church-going folk don't admit that we have questions, but we got them. And uh, next week, I'm starting a, a new series called I Doubt It. And these are like the major objections to belief in God. If you have questions, if you have friends who have questions, please grab them, bring them with you next week, and uh, we're going to jump into this series. I'm really excited. Uh, I learn more than anybody in these series because I have to dig into it and study it, and uh, it just always builds my faith, and so I'm excited about this one next week, but I'm excited about the resurrection. Let's see how many people we have in here who know maybe some traditions of the church. He is risen. He is risen All right. Yes, he is. All right. Well, today we're going to take a look at those last few moments on the cross. Two weeks ago, we started this series by a look at the upper room. And we kind of went through it in detail, what happened at the Passover feast. Those disciples, Jesus, up in that room, they had taken so many Passovers so many times. I imagine Peter, James, and John, all those guys up there were going, okay, you know, I was raised as a kid. I know every word of this. I'm ready for this. And then Jesus breaks the bread, and he says, this is my body. And I imagine their eyes went, whoa, what? This is your body, broken for you guys, for the world. And then he takes the cup and he says, hey, this is the cup of the new covenant, the blood. My blood's going to be spilt to establish a new contract, a new covenant with mankind once again. And I can just wonder, you know, and imagine what was going on in their minds when those words, those strange words, words that they were not used to hearing, came out of his mouth. Jesus was declaring that, over the so maybe thousand years prior that they had celebrated Passover and they had looked forward to the Messiah coming, to the Passover lamb coming, that it was happening right before their very eyes. And it's important. I mean, it's important. You know, we read this book. We look back in the Old Testament. We read about 
uh, animal sacrifices and all of this kind of stuff. And we got to have a bunch of weird stuff, man. You know, I love my pets. Why would anybody sacrifice, you know, an animal, a bunch of weirdo stuff? Gosh, I don't get it. And we just kind of scoot past it. But what we don't realize is God speaks into history with culture, with historical situations and traditions at that time. In the Exodus, when God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, he took the rituals, he took all of that of that period of time, and he spoke into history with the rituals, with the practices that people had already come up with. There were other groups sacrificing animals at that time. The Jews weren't the first to do that. But God looks at that and goes, look, let's take this and use this to tell humanity about what is coming, about my rescue that no animal sacrifice could ever really clean your sins away. Because every year they'd have to do it again, and again, and again, and again. But one day, through all of these prophecies, one day, the Messiah would come. The Lamb of God would come. And then we looked at this at the Passover communion, the upper room, and we saw where Jesus declared to them that This is happening right now. I am fulfilling this. No longer do you need to practice those rituals of slaying animals or putting the blood on the altar for your sins. You don't have to do that anymore because I've come. Now, they didn't get it, just like we don't get it many times. They didn't get it right then. You know, they had one of those moments. They're looking at Jesus and going, you know, he always says weird stuff. I don't know. Who knows what he's saying here? And so they leave the upper room. They probably sang the halal, you know, Psalms 113 through 118, which was the celebration songs of the Passover. They probably sang about half of it up front in the upper room. Later that night, they leave the upper room. They walk downstairs into the streets of Jerusalem singing the latter part of the halal. They walk out into the streets. They can hear all the animals. You can imagine it's late at night. They can have the smells the glow of the torches up and down the streets. Uh, there are animals that have been brought in to be sold for the sacrifices. They could hear the goats. They could hear the lambs. could hear the birds, the doves, and the cages. They could smell the food being cooked on the, the streets as the vendors were there. Maybe 150,000 people in town for this, the most awesome of all celebrations. And they walked through those streets out to a place that Jesus and the disciples knew all Uh, too well and that was Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus went to pray many times and this was last week's uh, part of 24 of our series where we followed Jesus and the disciples down those streets across the Kidron Valley with those torches just lighting up those old olive trees maybe some some of those trees a thousand years old walking in between the olive trees and into a special section where Jesus would go to pray and the disciples knew this area all Uh, They knew it very well. They'd seen Jesus go there alone many times, and many times he took them with him. This time they get up there, and he takes the three best friends with him, and he says, listen, would you guys just pray with me? Watch and pray. And then he goes off by himself, and we read the story of how Jesus collapsed on the ground, emotionally, spiritually, and physically overwhelmed with what he was about to face and what he was about to take on. It says that he was sorrowful unto death. He felt like he was going to die. 
inside of which he was. But was he fearful of the betrayal? What was he afraid of? We looked at all of that last Sunday. He goes back, you know, he asks his best friends to stick it out with him. And how many of you have had your best friends like just kind of go to sleep on the job? I mean, it's like, would you just be with me? I'll be with you, you know. And they're not there because they are not, they're just not getting it. They're not getting the importance of this moment, this time in history. Jesus goes back. He falls on his face before God, and he prays this same prayer three times. He says, Father, if there's any other way, I mean, if there's a plan B, now's a good time to tell me about it. You know, if there's a plan B, I sure would like to know because I, I'm unsure about what I'm about to face. I don't know what it's going to be like to be separated from you. I've been with you for eternity, Father. I don't know what it's going to be like to have the sins of the world fall upon my body and fall upon me. I don't know what that's going to be like to be separated from you on the cross when I take on the sins of the world. I don't know. I I have no idea. It's scaring me. Is there a plan B? But yet, just as quickly out of his mouth comes, not my will but yours. Three times he gets up and goes to his best friend's. You know, they're snoozing away. Third time he goes, and there's, when I read that story, I kind of sense in him this settledness. Like he's looked at his friends and he's realized, you know what? I got to walk this alone. Nobody is going to be able to walk this walk to the cross with me. I've got to do this right by myself. And so that third time, as he gets up and says, Not my will, but yours, he gets up, he goes back to his friends. He says, get up. You know, look who's coming, basically. And he looks down across that, that place, Gethsemane, the oil press. What a name, huh? I mean, Jesus is being pressed. That's what Gethsemane means, the oil press. And Jesus is being pressed, squeezed, as the oil of his life, the oil of what is to come is pressed out of him. I'm telling you, nobody can make this stuff up, man. I mean, what do we think? Somebody, well, we'll just have him go to the oil press where he's pressed. Oh, look, how, happen- how did that just happen? No, all of history, all of God's weaving things together, thousands of years of prophecy are beginning to come true at every moment. Every moment, there's another prophecy that comes to pass. And the disciples, I do believe, are catching on. They're thinking, could this really be? Could it? Could it be? Could this be happening? He gets the disciples up. He looks down across the Kidron Valley. And he sees another glow of torches coming out of the city. And as he makes his, they make their way up and come up the Kidron Valley and make their way through the olive trees, he looks in the glow of a face that is very familiar to him, the face of Judas. Behind him, the soldiers, as they make their way through the trees. And Jesus knows it's all about to come down. And as he approaches him, Judas comes over, and we know that famous moment when Judas leans down and gives him the kiss, right? The betrayal kiss, the Judas kiss. All these songs have been written about that. All these poems and people talk about a Judas kiss. You know, I find it remarkable uh, that we see these movies. I mean, don't, people, people, I'm not picking on the Bible on television. People are like, Tim, don't pick on it so much. You know, I just, but when you see movies and you see a good-looking Jesus, I mean, I know we all would like to think Jesus is a hunk, that he was awesome, and that he was beautiful. But, you know, Judas went and kissed Jesus to identify him so they would know which one was Jesus. 
And in the Old Testament, we're told that when Messiah would come, that no one would be able to recognize him. He wouldn't look any different than anybody else. He was an ordinary Jewish man, as ordinary by the way he looked as anyone else. I mean, he was truly human in the fact that he was ordinary, even in the way that he looked as well as 100% God. So Judas walks up and he gives him a kiss. And I did like uh, the History Channel's version of that because um, Peter steps up and whacks Judas right in the mouth, you know, <laughs> for doing that. I thought that was a nice touch, you know. I mean, have you been watching it? Did you see it last week? You know, he reached down and I mean, he, he nails him like, dude, what are you doing? I can't believe it. You hung out with us for three years and it comes to this. I mean, that's not in the Bible, but it was a nice touch. <laughs> Maybe it happened, I don't know. <laughs> but then, you know, Peter, Peter the Zealot, he's zealous like any good redneck Jewish guy. I mean, he pulls his sword out. You know, he pulls his sword out, and he goes to wail on one of the soldiers, and they did show that, and, you know, he whacks the soldier's ear off. I mean, Peter just wasn't that good with a sword. I mean, think about it. I mean, he just wasn't that good. He cut the guy's ear off. He didn't take his head off. He cuts his ear off. I mean... When I read that again and watched it last week in the movie, and I, I thought, boy, this reminds me so much. I went hunting with my brother one time. My brother-in-law, he owns, a, he owned, he's gone now, but he, he owned thousands of acres out in the country of farmland, and we used to hunt dove. You know what dove, doves are? You know, these, we call them the southern rockets. They can do a dance about the time you throw your barrel up. They, could, they do this number, and believe me, they've got more going for them than we do trying to shoot them. And, uh, and so anyway, we went dove hunting one day, and I'm here with all of these pro hunters, you know, around the field, and I've shot maybe three little doves, you know, and so we're walking back to the trucks at the end of the day, and my brother-in-law looks at me, and he goes, well, Tim, how many did you get? I said, well, you know, I got like maybe two or three here. I think this barrel on my shotgun, I, I think maybe it's a modified choke barrel. Maybe I need a, like a full choke on the barrel of this gun, and... And my brother-in-law looks at me and goes, it's not that end of the gun that needs correcting. <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't that end of the sword that Peter needed to be concerned with, as we see in the rest of the story. It was that end that was holding the end that God was after in Peter's life. Prophecy upon prophecy is being fulfilled. And I could just see this tsunami, this tidal wave of all the Old Testament prophecies just building up in this ocean of history, pushing up against the shore of the crucifixion and the resurrection. It's all coming to a head. All of history is building to this one moment in time, and it's going to be unloaded on the beach on the cross. And this tension, you can feel it in the air from the upper room right on into the garden, and now at the betrayal, and as they make their way to the cross... The Romans, what did they do this time every year in order to appease the Jewish people and to keep them from rioting and getting too upset? They would release a guilty man. I mean, I'm telling you guys, who, could, who makes this stuff up? Can you see that metaphor? The Romans, oh yeah, the Romans were in cahoots with the Jews to make the Bible accurate. Really? I mean, the Romans freed you know, a wicked man at Passover. Here at Passover is a perfectly innocent, pure individual in Jesus Christ, and they pull out this guy, Barabbas, the wicked of wicked, which is a picture of all of our sins right there being released for the innocent Lamb of God. You really ought to take a look at this. 
really ought to consider this story because it's more than just fable and more than just legend. Nobody weaves this stuff together. It doesn't just take all these thousands of years, all these authors, throw it up in the air, and it all falls down and comes together like this. You really should take a look at this. So we're going to join Jesus in these last few hours of his life over in Luke 23. If you've got your Bibles and you want to turn over there, it'd be great. Luke 23, verse 32, and then I'll read a short section from John as well. As we take this story in, these last few hours, this last little bit of time, Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight and what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. And then over in John, uh, the 19th chapter, the 28th verse, later knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful day we, that is Easter. Thank you that all of history built up to this one point and all of history points back to this moment and looks forward to the coming of you, Lord. Thank you, God, for this day when we can celebrate the price that you paid to reestablish a relationship with us by washing away all of our failures, our sins to reestablish a relationship with us and to receive us. We love you. We thank you. We ask for your help this morning on this day, God, so we can truly see something to celebrate about. So come Holy Spirit, be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read you a quote from a guy. This is from a long time ago, a guy named James Denny, 
1902. But I, I like the way he expresses this whole aspect of the life of Christ, the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. There can be no salvation from sin unless there is a living Savior. This explains the emphasis laid by the apostle on the resurrection. But the living one can be a Savior only because he has died. This explains the emphasis laid on the cross. The Christian believes in a living Lord, or he could not believe at all. But he believes in a living Lord who died an atoning death, for no other can hold the faith of a soul under the doom of sin. Uh, I have a friend that's a newspaper reporter here in town. Some of you know he and I have exchanges every now and then. Friendly, sometimes heated exchanges. But I love Isaac, and we have, a great, we have a great exchange, and I respect him. I think he respects me. And we got into a little Twitter discussion back here a few weeks ago, and we were going back and forth with each other. And finally, he tweeted me, and he said, Well, Tim, is there anything that would threaten your faith or anything that would unsettle you, anything that would shake you? And I wrote him back. I said, Yes, there's one thing. If someone could prove to me the resurrection never happened, then yeah. That would shake my faith to the core. And I'm in good company because Paul said the same thing over in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, where he said, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If Christ was not raised from the dead, then all this is is a great little nice meeting today. We had some good music, lovely people, donuts, coffee. You know, we got encouraged. Let's go surfing. All right. I mean, that's it. You know, that's great. But if the resurrection happened, if he came out of that grave, it changes everything. Because there is no one else who even claims, no major religion claims to have as their leader, their Messiah, someone who actually died a brutal death and then was raised from the grave. I have a little fill in there uh, in your handout that I just put together to help you track with me. And your first one there is the cross and the resurrection. It's a, I'm just putting this about three things just to help us zero in this morning. And the first one is this. The cross and resurrection is about us. It is about us. Jesus prayed this from the cross as he looked out. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, we read that, and I, you know, we all read that, and we think, well, he's talking about the Roman soldiers who crucified him. They didn't know they were crucifying the Son of God. Son of God. Uh, but, you know, when I read that, what I hear is Tim doesn't know what he's doing. That God, you know, Jesus looks out on humanity. He looks out on Tim holding. He looks at me, and he goes, man, have mercy on Tim. He doesn't have a clue what he's doing. I mean, are you, are you like that sometimes? You don't have a clue what you're doing through life. And when I got married, I thought I was the greatest husband in the world. I thought I knew what I was doing. 20 years old, married. I mean, here is the epitome of a wonderful self-sacrificing individual. God, give me a beautiful woman that I love being with. Lord, give me a beautiful woman who can cook. Lord, give me a beautiful woman who will let me surf as much as I want to. And Lord, give me a woman who will give me kids that I can enjoy. That was my prayer. I, you know, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. No clue. Matter of fact, I still don't have much of a clue what I'm doing. That makes you feel really great. And I stumble up here. It's like, I don't know what I'm doing. 
I don't know what I'm doing up here now. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't. I don't know. I mean, we don't know what we're doing. Most of our life is simply stumbling into things and going, I don't want anybody to know. I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, I stumble into my marriage. I stumble into relationships. I stumble into church. I stumble into work. I stumble into situations. And most of the time, I'm just winging it. We're ad-libbing. And we're trying to play jazz through the midst of this. We're just trying to get along. But I take great comfort in the fact that Jesus looked out on this world and he looked and he said, you know what? Father, he doesn't have a clue. We don't have a clue what we're doing. We don't know half the time. You know, that's part of it. And then we don't know what we're doing is we go, well, I'm not as bad as the next guy. Isn't it funny how we choose the people we want to compare ourselves with? I mean, it's like, well, I'm better than Hitler. I'm better than Mussolini. I'm better than Stalin. I'm better than Saddam Hussein. I'm better than, you know, we can name mass murderers, axe murderers, whatever. You know, we'll name somebody and we'll think, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. We don't know what we're doing. We justify ourselves that way. A few years back, I'm on this surf trip, and some of you have heard this story. Many, most of you haven't, but I was on this surf trip to a, a little island in the Caribbean, and, and uh, I'm sitting around the table with three very good friends, and we've had a great, you know, great time surfing some great waves. And I, you know, when I go on surf trips, I, I pray for the people that I'm with. I usually go with people who are not following Christ yet, and so with dear friends of mine that I love, and they love me. And uh, so I'm praying, though. I'm like, God, you know, if you can give me an opportunity at some point in time where maybe we can just talk about you, it would be great. And so I'm praying that, and we've, you know, we've surfed one day when it was just so big, and they were laughing at one particular way that I ate it on really bad. So everybody's laughing. Oh, you see, Tim, eat that one. You know, and everybody's getting a huge laugh at my expense. But then all of a sudden, the laughter dies down, and one of the guys goes, So, Tim, tell me why I'm not good enough for the God you talk about. I mean, just bang, like that. And I'm thinking, man, what a gift and what a great question. What a great question. Why am I not good enough? I'm a pretty good guy. I don't try to cheat anybody. I don't try to lie. You know, don't try to take advantage of people. And indeed, he is like that. He's a very good person, been very good to me for many, many years. Why am I not good enough? And then, you know, the question that was asked right behind that was, well, how good do you have to be? To be good enough. And who gets to set the bar at what is good enough? We all have our own bar, though, don't we? I mean, with other people, we'll set the bar somewhere. For us, it's probably down a little. And, you know, other people we have a bar for. You know, what is good enough to be good? And so we all, subjectively and relatively speaking, we all have that certain criteria for how much is good enough. And so I said, well, what's good enough? And, of course, it goes through a list. And I said, those are great lists. And, and then somebody else in the circle actually said, well, hey, have you ever told a fib? You ever lied? Well, yeah, everybody's lied. I said, well, it's over. Not good enough. <laughs> right there. The minute that happened, not good enough. How good do you have to be? The cross, the resurrection speaks to just exactly how good you have to be to be in right standing with God. You have to be perfect. 
And I mean perfect as God is perfect in order to be in right standing. That is why the cross is so important to those of us who follow Jesus. Because all of my imperfections, that wide gulf, that bridge too far for me to get over of goodness, Jesus paid the price for. Isn't it interesting? He hangs between heaven, perfection, and he hangs between earth, the fallenness of earth, and he hangs there between the two to bring us together. The cross speaks of us, speaks of our need. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. I love that prayer. You know, I pray it a lot. Remember what Jesus said, God. He doesn't know what he's doing. Come on, you know, help me, Jesus. And God knows. Jesus knows you don't know what you're doing when it comes to this. That's why he came to make a way. It's about you. What does God think about you? Luke 15, 34, we just read. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is willing to be forsaken for you. He's willing to be separated from his father whom he has never been separated from ever in eternity for you. That's what he thinks about you. Galatians 2.20, he loved me and gave himself for me. That's what he thinks about you. Ephesians 5.2, Christ loved us and gave himself for us. A fragrant offering. Here's that Passover look again, that reference back to that the final offering has come. The sacrifice has come in Christ for up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The cross is about you. The resurrection is about you. And secondly, it's about God. It's about God the Father because he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, truly the Father loves you. Somehow we want to separate that, you know, there's the angry Father God and then there's a loving Jesus and that kind of thing. And so we just, we don't want to talk about that. The cross and the resurrection speaks to who God the Father is. In John 5, 19, Jesus said, Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Maybe you had a good dad. Maybe you had a dad who took care of you, protected you, gave you gifts. He was always there for you. Maybe you had a not-so-good dad. Maybe you had a horrible dad. Some of us, I know, had horrible situations, abuse, neglect, abandonment issues that we go through. But I want to tell you, no matter how good or how bad of a father you had on this earth, this father is unlike any you've ever had or experienced. Unlike any of them. And we draw these conclusions out of our experiences because that's all we have. But this father is different than all of them. Philip, you know, he, he was one of the disciples. He was trying to wrap his mind around this. He wanted to see God the Father, and he asked the question. He says, Lord, in John chapter 14, he says, Lord, show us the Father. Just show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Just show us the Father. I mean, it's like some of us, show me my creator, Tim. Just show me. Show me who holds all the cards. Just show me that. Show me how God really feels about me. Show me who is actually in charge, who's in control of things. Jesus responds to that question and to Philip in John 14, 9 with, Don't you know me, Philip? Don't you know Jesus? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. 
How can you say, show us the Father? You ever heard he looks just like his father? You ever heard that? My aunt, 93-year-old aunt, died this past week. She loved Jesus. And uh, we were at the funeral home. And my first cousins, my dad, my brothers, were all there together. And the wife of one of my first cousins, whom I never see unless it's at a funeral like this, turns and looks at our family. And if you're Southern, you'll get this. If you're not, I'll explain it. Um, you know, she turns and she looks at our family and she goes, Man, y'all sure are eat up with the Holt. <laughs> it's like, man, all you Holts look the same, you know. It's like, I got to tell you, when you look at Jesus, he is eat up with the Father. When you see Jesus, you see your Father in heaven. You see how he loves you, what he did to reconcile you. The cross, the empty grave, all of that is a picture of the father, picture of the prodigal father over in Luke 15 who looks down the road for you a long way off, it says in Luke 15, 20. He's looking for you no matter how far away you are. He still looks for you. Each and every moment, he's looking down that road expecting you to return to him. In Luke 15, 20, he says that when he sees you, he's filled with compassion, full of compassion for you. And then he takes the initiative. It says in 15:20, he runs to greet you. This picture that Jesus gave of his father. He's ready to throw his arms around you, to welcome you back. This is the father that Jesus reveals to us. And he's ready to give you, just like in Luke 15:22, everything that you need to know you have been received home. What did that father do? He put a ring on his finger, put a robe around him put new shoes on his feet, everything he needed to look down at himself and go, the Father's taking me back. He's taking me home. The cross, the empty grave is about the Father, and lastly, it's about Jesus. It is about Jesus. Jesus looks out. He looks at the thief on one side. One's railing against him. The other says, hey, he's an innocent man. And then he says, just remember me, Jesus. You know, it doesn't take that much to for Jesus to respond to you? All that thief said was, just remember me, Jesus. Remember me. And Jesus turns to him and says, don't worry about it. In just a little bit of time, we're going to be in a great place. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. This love, you know, our culture loves Jesus. They've been in love with Jesus for a long time. We wear crosses around our neck. We wear them in our ears. We got ink on our bodies, you know, with the cross. I've heard every major rock star in the world make gross quotes and comments to wonderful comments about the cross, about Jesus. Everybody loves Jesus, kind of. They don't really know him yet, but, you know, but they should love him even more so if you knew what he went through for you, to forgive you, to reestablish your relationship with the Father that you've been separated from. It's about Jesus, about the price that he paid. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? That was for you. Jesus willingly put himself. Jesus could have said no. He could have called the angels to bring him down. He could have stopped the whole thing, but he didn't because of you. Because he saw a future for you as his brother, as his sister. And then he says those words, it is finished. Wow, I love that. It is finished. 
There's nothing left to contribute. You ever paid off like a mortgage payment? I'm working on it most of the time. I'm working on it. How about a car payment? You finally get that car paid for, and you're like, wow, you know, I'm really going to take care of it now because I want it to last, right? I'm going to treat it nice. You know, you paid off a guitar, surfboard, something like that. You know, there's n- when things are paid in full, there is nothing left to contribute. There's nothing else you can do to buy it or make it any more paid off. You go to the bank, you get your, you know, uh, what do you call it? The... Yeah, title, thank you. You get the title, you go to your bank, you go, well, I got this title, but I got another thousand I'd like to put on it. And they'd go, dude, the thing is paid for. Now, we'll put it in the savings account if you like, but, you know, it's paid for. No, no, you don't understand. I'd really like to pay a little more for it. No, no, no. It was paid in full. There is nothing left to pay. That is what the cross, that is what the empty grave, that is what it's about. Paid in full, stamped. And then the empty grave is the proof of purchase. That Jesus had the authority, he had the power, he was the one sent to put that stamp on there and pay the price of your bill. That was it. All that's left to do now is to receive it and to enjoy it. Take care of it, drive around in that car, keep it clean. Gas tub is paid for, baby. You know, and I mean, you take care of it, right? And you live like it's yours because it was a price paid for it. And so you're thankful and you live life that way. The empty grave is the final stamp, the proof of purchase that Jesus, that this Father we've talked about this morning, has the power and the authority to pay for and to secure your freedom. All that's left now is for you to receive it. This is your day. It's a day that speaks to the Father, and it's a day that celebrates the obedience of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for when the Father looked to you and said, it's time. It's time in eternity to go and to redeem mankind. We've given them clues. We've given them evidence down through this past thousand years that we were coming, that we were going to do this, that there would be one final Passover lamb that would pay the price. Now's the time. Jesus, we celebrate you and we thank you for your love. And I just, just to give you an opportunity to respond this morning, if Indeed, today, you know God has been pulling on you and wooing you to come and follow Him. If today is your day and you're like, you know what, you're right, Tim. You're right. And I want to start taking some steps. I'd like to know so I can pray for you. If you could just lift your hand up, let me know, say, that's me. Tim, pray for me. Yes, thank you. Just let me thank you. Just say, Tim, that's me. Thank you. Father, I pray for those who raise their hand that you would come with your mercy and your grace. Sweep through, Lord, and affirm to them that the debt has been paid in full. Holy Spirit, as we prepare to sing this last song of Easter today, would you liberate our hearts to truly celebrate the empty grave and the love that you have for us. In Jesus' name. 
we hope you enjoyed this week's podcast from Seacoast Vineyard Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We look forward to you joining us next time on iTunes or at our website, www.seacoastvineyard.com.